Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It's time for another Benny J bonus interview brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. Post time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Lord knows when you're listening to this. I'll give you uh, a headline from today's, not even newspaper. Today's, this is hot. It's so hot. It's on my phone. So I haven't even had the pleasure of reading it in the newspaper. I'm, be, I'm like a millennial. I'm getting my news on a phone. Uh, this is a breaking story right before uh, my interview with my distinguished guest. Uh, and it's Supreme Court permits House Democrats to obtain Trump's tax returns. This story just broke, uh, and I just enjoyed reading it so much. Donald Trump is truly uh, one of the great grifters of all time, in my humble opinion. Uh, if I had to do an all-star list of grifters, it would be Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump does not want his tax returns released. We all know that, uh, even though it's standard policy and practice, excuse me, for uh, presidential candidates to do just that, to release their uh, tax returns. Actually, it's not just uh, presidential candidates, mayoral candidates in the city of Chicago, gubernatorial candidates in the state of Illinois. They release their tax returns. It's become acceptable practice. I don't, there's no law that says they have to do it, at least far as I know, on a national level, there might be some states that have a lot of requirement. I'm not aware of that right now. Um, but they do it because they just want to show the world that uh, they're abiding by all the rules and regulations. They uh, just like any ar- normal, ordinary taxpayer, uh, they're paying their due share. Uh, and they just there's a amount of transparency. And by the way, even if you're fabulously wealthy and have all kinds of investments uh, that shield your taxes your tax burden it the record doesn't show that the uh the voting public uh, holds that against you It'd be interesting to have a bit of a conversation with our distinguished guests on this point i know that jb Pritzker, the current uh, governor of the state of illinois a fabulously wealthy he's a billionaire uh, has all kinds of tax shields investments in uh, uh in the Car- caribbean countries and stuff that shield and protect how much he pays and now it's um he's got it in a blind trust there's a whole issue of who controls that blind trust point is he was elected twice back to back by illinois voters including some of the most progressive minded voters in the city of chicago some of the most leftiest voters in the city of chicago voted for him. so there's no evidence that tax uh, excuse me that uh voters use whatever information they gather from releasing a tax return and hold it against uh, a uh, politician. Donald Trump's uh, reasons for doing that are kind of quirky. Uh, reasons for re- shielding, not releasing. Mike, there's two theories. One is uh, that he's always claimed a tremendous success as a businessman and likes to brag that he's a billionaire. And the taxes will show uh, that he um, uh, is not, in fact, a billionaire. He's got less money than he uh, promotes. There's that theory. And the other theory is that uh, he's doing something illicit that there's something in his tax returns that will show uh, uh, deceitful practices. Uh, and 
that's what there's investigations in New York right now uh, about uh, Donald Trump's business practices. So those are two reigning theories as to why he has uh, refused to follow this protocol. The, the House investigators, the Democratic Congress people in the House, uh, subpoenaed his tax records as part of their ongoing investigations into what Donnie knew and when did he know it on absolutely anything. Uh, an appellate court had ruled uh, that uh, Trump had no constitutionally protected reason uh, for uh, shielding his tax returns. Donald Trump was resisting it. He took it all the way to the Supremes. And this story just broke. The Supreme Court cleared the way for a House committee to receive Trump's tax returns, refusing to request to block their release in the waning weeks of Democratic control of the chambers. The court's order, which was unsigned and did not note any dissents, is the most recent instance in which it has sided against Trump. I love this one because three of those uh, appointees are Trump appointees. Three of those uh, judges, those justices in the Supremes, are Trump appointees. And I think they kind of want to go out of their way to show they're not puppets for Donald Trump. <laughs> Everybody thinks they are, but they just want to show that they're not. I'm not a Trump puppet, okay? I'm my own man or woman. Uh, so they ruled against him in this one. Of course, I got a feeling, uh, to quote John Lennon, uh, that they're just Donald Trump is just going to ignore it and uh, wait until uh, the Republicans take control of the House. Uh, and then, of course, with MAGA in charge of the Congress, they'll drop the subpoena and the request, and the whole thing will be moot. What a, what a system, ladies and gentlemen. Donald Trump said the system was rigged, and now he's proving it in real time. Donald Trump said the system's rigged, and he's showing you how it is rigged. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, and then I'm going to ask him for his thoughts. We'll start with his thoughts. Uh, on this breaking news, and we'll take it from there. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Miles Camplassen. I am web editor at In These Times Magazine, a national progressive uh, political publication and a big fan of the Ben Jarofsky show. So very happy to be here. Yes, and a regular in the Ben Jarofsky show, and uh, we're going to resist any temptation to take a deep dive on our beloved Chicago Bulls who finally won. Okay. Finally broke their losing streak last night, beating the best team in the East, or one of the best teams in the East, the Boston Celtics. All right. Uh, your thoughts on Donald Trump? This is breaking news. Uh, I'm just curious. I don't think we've ever had a conversation this about, in your humble opinion, why Donald Trump shields his taxes uh, and whether the Supremes rule against Donald Trump because uh, they want to just show a little independence and that, that they're, uh, they're not his stooges. Uh, just your general thoughts uh, on this topic. Well, one thing we've learned over the past, you know, six, eight years of American politics is that the Trump organization is a criminal enterprise. And, you know, from top to bottom, whether it was Trump University, you know, or um, whether it was Trump stakes, any of these various business ventures, but most um, kind of pertinently his real estate ventures um have been shown to have been corrupt you know and made through uh backdoor deals and rewarding certain investors and certainly trying to play for political favors um and he's been shielded so far because he has you know built up a system much like they would do you know in the mafia wherein there's not really a paper trail to um to the don you know and in this case that being the former president and you know he obviously tweets a lot or these days doesn't tweet but posts uh, truth social and you know he likes to be out there but he works very diligently to keep himself separated from uh, a lot of these deals so you've seen a number of officials from the trump organization now face actual legal consequences 
but you haven't seen that for Trump himself. And I think that has to do with the fact he's uh, been effective at maintaining some distance. You know, he doesn't like to write things down. He, you know, transcribes things for other people to send out. He doesn't like to use the phone for certain situations. I mean, he he did famously with the Zelensky call, get himself in some trouble, but he tries to avoid some of that stuff. And so really the tax returns are the last, bastion of new information that could be gleaned about how Trump himself is implicated in a lot of these deals. And I think that is the reason why he's been, um, he's never released them. You know, he broke precedent and never, no presidential candidate had gone that uh, much time in the modern history of the United States without uh, giving some information on what they own, you know, what their finances are. That's traditionally been something that um, the public has been allowed to know about their elected officials and Trump has maintained that cone of silence. It also could have to do with, you know, actually how much he's worth. You know, Trump has just bragged about being a multi-billionaire, but there's no, you know, paper trail to, to, to show that. So all of those could be uh, the case, but also he just wants to avoid any legal uh, repercussions. And as a recently announced candidate for president, I think that uh, he it's in his interest to delay because he can just call this another part of the witch hunt. That's the same thing he said, you know, after the special prosecutor got announced by Merrick Garland uh, earlier this week. He just said this is the latest line of the witch hunt, you know, and it fits into his narrative of victimization. And um, as long as he delays that, I think you're right that both the, the a Republican House would um, do what it can to shield him once Kevin McCarthy gets the gavel. Uh, but also, while he's running for president, he's not going to release this stuff. You know, the, the the Supreme Court can order it, but he's shown himself to be non-compliant and be willing to face consequences. And even if he faces, you know, indictment or potentially even convic- conviction, it's hard to see how he would agree to give himself up for in in any of these situations because he has you know he, he he's part part of the Roy Cohn school right which yeah. is never admit defeat never admit being wrong and just fight through it and so far in his political career up until 2020 and arguably in these midterms too where you know his hand picked candidates faced some massive losses up until then in politics he hadn't really you know that strategy hadn't failed him just you know just ignore and move on from everything from the access hollywood tapes to you know the controversy over his multiple impeachments he was able to kind of evade um, accountability so i think we should expect him to continue um on that pathway going forward well how do you sense uh, the fallout uh that would ensue if the republicans who take over uh congress uh, kevin mccarthy's crowd uh with marjorie taylor green and uh lauren bobert uh if they are the ones who uh cut off the investigation uh so you know we in the aftermath of the midterms uh there was commentary from the right from uh, the murdoch crowd from the New York Post, et cetera, that it's time for the Republicans to cut themselves off from Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump just ignored them, uh, announced he was running for president, and as you pointed out, is uh, continuing to uh, uh, do his sob story, crying like a little baby he is, like that MAGA is, uh, that they're all picking on him, it's a witch hunt. I mean, it's kind of hard for me to imagine Republicans being able to avoid joining the Trump 
is being picked on chorus, which just then undercuts their efforts to cut the party off from Trump and have a new day where they're not even talking about Trump. I just got to think that this <laughs> this continues uh, Trump's dominance uh, in Magalan uh, with the Republican Party. Your general thoughts about these tensions in the Republican uh, end of things. Well, he's the king of Magaland. He's never going to, you know, lose his throne there. It's more of a question of within the Republican caucus, you know, because the base is all, you know, dedicated to Trump. I mean, that's why his candidates won all these primaries, because the Republican electorate has been primed to follow Trump and Trumpism. I mean, look, they based their entire political program around him. Look at, I mean, you could say like abortion wasn't really him, but uh, I think he's always been a little bit nervous about um, the, you know, taking away Roe v. Wade. And even though he promised to get these justices on the Supreme Court who would repeal it, I think he realized that it probably was going to be a, a political problem for Republicans, which it has turned out to be, which is why he like never really talked about abortion. But if you look at the other parts of the Republican program, immigration, you know, was like Trump's number one thing. All the autopsies in previous, you know, years by the Republican Party said we need to moderate on immigration in order to boost Latino vote. Trump came in and said, no, they're rapists and murderers. And suddenly, you know, the border is all the, uh, the right wing media wants to talk about because they based it around Trump. And then it was Stop the Steal, which is all about Trump. These are kind of like the defining paradigms of the Republican Party, at least when it comes to its base. And that's what they've been has been drilled into their heads through right wing media. So I think it would be very difficult for the party to divorce itself from Trump as long as the base is with him. And I don't think we've really seen even the elected leadership try to do that. You, you hear like murmurs by people like Chris Christie that like, oh, we need to move on from Trump and a few governors here or there. But by and large, you know this. I mean, they're not, nobody wants to come for the king. Even people like DeSantis, who Ron DeSantis in Florida, who's being, you know, lifted up as his likely um, opponent in the 2024 um, primary, He's not all he's willing to say is, you know, look at how we did in Florida. That shows how we're successful. <laughs> how are you going to be the alternative to Trump if you don't actually oppose him? And they're all still scared. Even Mike Pence, you know, Mike Pence, who was, you know, the, Trump whipped up a crowd to bring out a guillotine and, and champ, hang Mike Pence. His whole publicity tour on this book, he's refusing to actually criticize Trump openly. And they, they they're doing it because they know they'll lose a huge portion of the base if they um, come out against Trump, unless they're, you know, people like Brian Kemp or um, others that, you know, have their own electorate that they can turn to, you know, when you're trying to get Republican support on a national scale, it's just a bridge too far to ask them at this point to um, denounce Trump or even to oppose him. So I don't think, I, I just don't see that. I, I know that there has been some talk of like, we need to turn the page, you know, even like Josh Howley and stuff is like, we need a new party. But if you're not going to actually do anything to oppose the person who almost assuredly is going to be your next nominee, um, there's, I, it, it, there's a little, you know, proof to process that you're care about divorcing the party from Trumpism. It just means it's just, you know, basic banal political wheel 
you know, dealing, like saying we want to, you know, build up our support amongst independents. So we have to have some distance from Trump, but we also can't offend the base. They're trying to thread that needle. And so far, it's, I think, proving to be a very difficult proposition for um, that side of the aisle. Absolutely. When you mentioned Brian Kemp, I had a smile on my face. This, uh, uh, of course, uh, he's the governor of Georgia, just recently elected, defeated uh, Stacey Abrams. Uh, and there's a runoff, a senatorial runoff in Georgia, Raphael Warnock, the incumbent against Herschel Walker, the MAGA man that was handpicked by Donald Trump. Uh, and so Donald Trump has said he wants to come to Georgia to campaign on behalf of Herschel Walker and the Republicans. The Republicans in Georgia are like, don't come, don't come. I'm like, the underwriting is lesson to voters. This is like the message they're sending out is that you're complete idiots. You know what I'm saying, Miles? Like Trump himself would be offensive and that would turn people off. That just sort of forgets the fact that Herschel Walker would not be the candidate, but for the fact that Donald Trump plucked him out of just utter obscurity and propped him up to be the candidate, and that's why he won the Republican primary and is in the runoff. It's just like, it's so delusional. You, you know what I mean? It's like the emperor has no clothes. We're going to pretend that reality isn't reality, uh, and like the illusion will be that Brian Kemp, somehow or other, the governor who Trump tried to defeat, uh, is the reason Herschel Walker is the, the nominee. So you're right. There's a certain amount of schizophrenia here, uh, and I guess the Republican voters are supposed to just look the other way and pretend it doesn't exist. I'm not quite sure that's going to work out, Miles. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's a, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, this midterm election showed that the former president remains an albatross around the party's neck when it comes to trying to appeal to a broad, you know, spectrum of voters. And it's not like that couldn't have been foreseen. He literally lost the last election, you know, and that's, people took weird lessons from that and i know he says he didn't lose it but he did and and as part and then he you know uh sent a mob to the capitol to you know do a do a coup basically to you know commit insurrection in order to you know reinstate him uh as president and there was a brief moment you remember this when in the days after january 6th where mitch mcconnell could have gotten enough of his caucus together to vote for impeachment in the Senate, which would have, you know, disallowed Trump from running for public office again. And had he done that, they would have avoided much of it. And they could just say, look, this was, you know, the result of a terrible tragedy that happened on our, you know, nation, the the steps of our nation's capital. It's something to, you know, evade having to align themselves with Trump. But he didn't at every turn uh the, the republican party has been too weak to uh separate itself from trump because they like some aspects of it you know they were able to fulfill one of their biggest policy goals of the past generation in overturning roe v wade but now they won't even talk about it because they realize that's a political liability and that they're losing because of it and instead they're staying um by showing fealty to trump who at this point He's, you know, he's either going to be the next nominee of the Republican Party or he's going to make sure the Republicans don't win the next election. You know, there's no way that Trump's going to like fades, you know, softly into the night. He's made clear he's willing to make enemies with any of them, especially Mitch McConnell, who just the other day Trump was like making fun of his wife 
you know, yeah. publicly for being yeah. like an agent of China. This is his wife, Elaine Chao, was in Trump's cabinet, you know, but she famously, you know, was one of the people who left after January 6th. Um, and Trump, I think, was so offended by that, that he still is, you know, making fun of her. Mitch McConnell has to deal with this. And the fact that I think the Trump is like supporting Rick Scott for um, minority leader in the in the Senate now over Mitch McConnell. That's not what, that's not how you keep a caucus together. You know, that's just how you create flame wars within uh, within the party. And it seems like that's clearly what um, what Trump's planning to do. And so I don't see how they're going to you know figure out some balance of forces there unless they completely refuse to criticize him whatsoever over the course of the next two years, which is, I bet, what is going to happen. Yeah. I, I think you're right about that. Uh, they're just going to continue uh, down the path they've been heading on. All right, let's go to the other side, talk about Democrats. Uh, the midterms just occurred. Democrats lost the House, but it was closer than anybody, or I shouldn't say anybody. Michael Moore predicted that Democrats would hold on the House than most uh, mainstream uh, pundits uh, were predicting. Boy, do they look bad, mainstream political pundits. Uh, and the Democrats uh, held on to the Senate. They run off. Uh, what are your lessons for the Democratic Party that you see uh, coming out of the, the midterms? I think it was a historic night. And the Democratic Party uh, has a lot. It owes a lot to both young people, the labor movement, as well as you know, progressives who refuse to back down in the face of, you know, tons and tons of corporate dark money spent, not just in general uh, elections, but also in primaries as well. Um, the The lesson's pretty clear: is that voters want progressive policies and will vote for progressive candidates, um, and it's on the party leadership to provide voters with that option and you know when it's on the ballot whether it's in uh referendums and ballot measures which we saw across the country from washington dc having voters embrace uh you know a higher tipped minimum wage for service workers to illinois where voters enshrined collective bargaining rights in the constitution um to other states like colorado and montana and maryland where voters approve progressive policies like marijuana legalization and other uh, support for workers affordable housing um, if you look at the measure in los angeles measure ula to provide support for um, houseless individuals by having you know actually taxing the rich to massachusetts where there was actually millionaires tax voters want progressive policy and when they're offered it up on the ballot um they will will choose it and you know if you look at candidates like john fetterman he was he had a stroke when he won the primary you know what talk about a candidate who would be you know have a hard row to hoe in a state like pennsylvania where you're running for the seat of a former for, for a Republican, Pat Toomey, who's exiting office, that was a pickup for the Democrats, right? And John Fetterman was one of the most left-wing candidates to run. Um, and he ran in a state like Pennsylvania, you know, former industrialized state. And he ran on Medicare for all. He ran on, you know, uh, uh, climate provisions. He ran on um, trying to, you know, tax the rich and redistribute income. That's uh, incredible, you know, and then you look at races in the House, like Summer Lee, also in Pennsylvania, 
um, a very uh, progressive representative who is now going to uh, join the House. Uh, Delia Ramirez here in Illinois, Greg Cesar in, um, in Austin, Texas, Maxwell Frost in Florida. There's a, a whole new uh, crew of left-wing uh, representatives that are going to be in the House that are going to, you know, build up this caucus of actual left-wing voices who are going to be able to hopefully make some uh, changes in terms of how things are run within the Democratic Party. The issue, I think, is this is a little separate from the election, but one of the things we've seen um, in the past couple of weeks has been, you know, Nancy Pelosi announced that she's stepping down um, as as the leader of the Democrats in the House, and in her place, it looks like they're going to lift up Hakeem Jeffries, a representative mm -hmm. from New York. Well, Jeffries has been arguably more hostile to the left of the party than even Pelosi has. He's much younger, you know, he's a new generation. And that's what they're, you know, all bragging about the people like Jim Clyburn and Sidney Hoyer are saying, you know, we're ushering in a new era of leadership. Well, it could be an even more kind of right wing democratic uh, generation of leadership, which is dangerous. And we haven't seen so far members of the squad really speak out against that or say that they're going to, you know, uh, vote against him. I would like to see a little bit more agitation within the Democratic caucus over leadership, because, you know, we're, we're certainly seeing that on the right wing side. I have no respect for, you know, Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, but at least they have uh, you know, a willingness to fight and, you know, and say, hey, we're not going to go along with what the Republican leadership wants us to do, where they're fighting to get Andy Biggs in there instead of Kevin McCarthy. They're putting up a fight. And even though Kevin McCarthy is going to be the next House Speaker, um, they're going to, the right wing of the Republican Party is going to extract concessions, you know, yeah. from leadership to get their votes. And that's going to mean, you know, committee assignments, leadership positions, things like that. And without causing that kind of crisis and disruption, it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to get their progressives who are growing their block of power um, in Congress into leadership positions. And we saw that with Pramila Jayapal, you know, the head of the CPC. People had long been expecting that she was going to run for leadership. And instead, she's running for head of the CPC again. And it looks like it's basically going to be all centrist in House leadership um, going forward. A lot of that, I think, has to do with the Ukraine letter controversy, which we don't have to get into, but I think that really uh, put a lot of pressure on Jayapal to not run um, for leadership because people saw her as weak because of how that whole um, experience went down. Um, but it's not great for the left, you know, building its um, future bench in terms of being able to take over leadership. That said, you know, state houses across the country are going to have progressives are going to have socialists, you know, the Democratic Socialists of America had their best election ever. There's going to be more socialists in Congress than any point in U.S. history uh, next term. And, you know, in states like Wisconsin, um, there's going to be tons of socialists serving on um, state assembly. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of lessons you can take from 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 what happened uh, on, on November 8th. But you can't deny that um, that progressive policy is popular and when people run on it, you know, it might not work in every single case, but by and large, this is this um, this election was proof positive of it and of 
you know, the failures of the stale centrism. Just look at what happened in New York, where the party worked to make sure that left-wing candidates couldn't run, like Mondaire Jones, who had been a popular representative. They districted him, him out and had Sean Patrick Maloney run in his place, a true dyed-in-the-wool centrist. And he flopped on his face. He was the head of the DCCC, you know, the, the, the House fundraising arm that Rahm Emanuel had previously held and got all this praise for. Well, Maloney, um, who's voiced tons of criticism of the progressive wing of the party, he lost to a Republican in a district that was like Biden double digit numbers that the Democrats were widely expected to hold. And that goes along with um, a long trend of that happening. Even Summer Lee, who I mentioned in, in Pennsylvania, you know, APAC spent uh, $2 million against her in a, a primary campaign and Democrats just sat back, you know, the establishment because they were willing to let her moderate opponent beat her. Summer Lee still barely won that primary. And then in the general election, of course, APAC spent a million dollars to defeat her in that, to lift up the Republican. And Democrats, you know, stood by, didn't, didn't really come in. So I think that we got to look, have a sober look at this and say, you know, the party infrastructure is still um, standing in opposition to left-wing candidates. But unless they open the door, you're not going to see the type of success that the Democrats had again. And just look at the role of the youth vote. You know, this was the second highest youth turnout in 30 years. And it came on the heels of Biden finally doing a historic investment in um, in uh, efforts to mitigate climate change and uh, canceling student debt, you know, a, a, a policy that's going to affect millions and millions of young people. So, you know, you've got to offer actual change in people's mm -hmm. lives. And I think the other thing is, the final thing I'll say on this is, you know, people aren't really talking about the role of um, spent government spending and economics, but we can't divorce what happened on uh, November 8th with the whole suite of um, policies meant to benefit working class people that were passed under the Biden administration. Everything from, you know, we had uh, expanded unemployment insurance, we had stimulus checks go out, we've had a, you know, eviction moratorium. Um, a lot of the, we had a child tax credit, which sent money directly to um, to families to keep food on the table to help their kids. A lot of those programs have expired, which is a tragedy and I think shows the limits of democratic governance or at least, you know, thin margins of control. But that doesn't mean that voters have completely forgotten about the fact that over the this past, you know, few years of their lives, there was some really positive economic impacts that happened after um, the pandemic. And so I think all of those things help explain why it was such a historic night for the Democrats. And I really hope they don't learn the wrong lessons, which we are already hearing, which is that we need to move even further to the center and, you know, distance ourselves from socialism or defund the police or whatever, when, you know, the the people that talked about crime the most in their campaigns and tried to distance themselves from defund were the New York Democrats. And look what happened to that delegation. They got absolutely crushed. All right. I, I can go on and on about New York. I'm going to resist that uh, temptation. I'm just, I, I, every now and then my poor wife has to put up with me. I'll just like burst into a riff out of nowhere. Those idiot Democrats in New York, they are the dumbest collection of democrats i've been following democratic politics since the 60s ladies and gentlemen that collection of democrats in new york the single dumbest they don't understand gerrymandering i i just don't get me started uh miles on the new york dems that and, le, and led by cuomo 
even though he's out. That was their guy, their guiding guy for all these years. Uh, so, yes, I'm with you 100 uh, percent. Let's hope that Cuomo slash Emmanuel democratic style of governing uh, ha- will be abandoned. I don't know. It's 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 hard to imagine that. Uh, Michael Moore, who I think uh, did a great service, in my humble opinion, uh, Michael Moore, the leftist filmmaker, uh, all throughout was like a cheerleader uh, for lefty causes coming into the election. We're going to win. Even all the pundits, oh, they're going to lose. It's going to be a bigger, a red wave. You know, the New York Times, which is, <laughs> don't get me started in the New York Times. I, I, this is me saying it, not Miles. Some of the worst political coverage, in my humble opinion, in terms of inaccurate and clearly trying to um, uh, just like uh, gaslight their liberal readers. Uh, so wholly inaccurate coverage was trying to convince people every step of the way that the Dems would lose. Michael Moore said, no, they're going to win. And now he's saying the Dems should use this, what, it's like a month, I forget how many days it is before uh, Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans take control of the House to pass a legislation that would be popular to the Democratic base, that would be good for the country. Just get it done now in this little window. Of course, the Republicans would do it, but of course, more often than not, Dems, man, they just, they don't get the game. They're clueless. Uh, so what are your thoughts about Michael Moore's suggestion that the Dems use this moment in time, uh, this quote-unquote lame duck session, where they're still uh, in charge to pass legislation? You still got Dems running the show in the Senate, and you got Joe Biden in the White House, so they could do this. Uh, what's your thoughts about Michael Moore's suggestion that the Democrats take advantage of this moment? Well, I agree with Michael Moore, but uh, I think Michael Moore understands that Joe Manchin exists and he's not, you know, yeah. on board with that. So <laughs> there's the same structural, you know, uh, <laughs> barriers to passing progressive legislation that have existed for these past two years are going to exist for these next uh, two months as well. And Manchin has already said that he thinks that any, for example, um, you know, the big ticket item is passing a resolution to continue to fund the government, right, to, to um, override the debt ceiling or, you know, whatever, raise the debt ceiling. Well, the Democrats could basically eliminate the debt ceiling, or at least for the next two years, where we know Republicans are going to control the House, um, they could pass enough spending right now in the lame duck to make sure there is never, you know, over the course of the next two years, a crisis where we need to extend that uh, amount of funding further, right? And that's not some pie in the sky thing. I mean, that could easily be done. They're already going to pass, something is going to get passed to fund the government. Um, So why not just, you know, make it up a higher level so that Republicans can't effectively um, exercise veto power and refuse to get behind it in the house and therefore, you know, muddle up any, um, any deal. Well, because Joe Manchin has already said he wants any deal on that to be bipartisan. And right now there is just not the appetite uh, on the Republican side to do anything bipartisan. I don't think we're going to see any bipartisan legislation from now until, you know, 2024 to uh, 2024 um, at the earliest. Um, at least when it comes to anything of significance, because mainstream Republicans, Republican leadership has said that they, the lesson that they are taking is that they compromised too much with the Biden administration and therefore got punished by voters. And so they're not going to allow their members to cross the aisle. The one um, 
variable in that is the New York delegation we just talked about because they, those members won in all these heavy Biden states. So they might feel some pressure to actually do something with Republicans, but McCarthy's not going to allow them to. And certainly they're not going to do it before, you know, Republicans take the gavel um, next year. So it's very difficult to imagine without the, the Democrats could, as you said, use, you know, their 50 vote margin, do another reconciliation package with Joe Manchin and be able to and pass it in the House and expend government funding. And if they don't do that, we know exactly what they're going to do. They've already broadcast it. They're going to cut Social Security and they're going to cut Medicare and Medicaid. They're going to go after, you know, what they consider the kind of like golden eggs that they've been trying, they've been, they've been lusting after for, you know, decades now of so-called entitlement programs. And uh, if Democrats let them do that, that will be on them. I mean, basically how it will go is they'll say, look, we're only going to agree to any government funding if we enact these reforms to, you know, help protect the long-term viability of these programs, which just means cutting them. Um, and the result is going to be more pain um, for working people across the country. And that could be avoided if we do what Michael Moore suggested, you know, and, and use this brief moment, uh, a trifecta of democratic control of government, which might not be seen again for decades, um, if not longer, uh, to, to actually ensure that we don't have to go through that. We could avoid that because that's the only veto power the Republicans have. They're not going to pass any legislation because Democrats control the Senate and Joe Biden's in the White House. But what they can do is hold certain bills hostage and refuse to, um, you know, uh, allow them to go through. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to things like keeping the government funded, that's so serious that Democrats will be forced to make some type of uh, deal. Now, it's, it is promising that Biden said in one of his first speeches, you know, after the midterms, I'm not going to do anything to, that would cut Social Security or Medicare. That's very different from what Obama was saying, you know, after the midterms of his race, you know, it was largely the efforts of Bernie Sanders, to be honest, that helped to protect Social Security from the so-called like chained CPI program that Democrats were on board with making a grand bar bargain budget deal with John Boehner to pass back then. But even with even with Biden standing in opposition, it's going to be very difficult to resist the Republican cuts to programs like that unless Democrats do something over this lame duck. So I think you're right, but it's just the, the Joe Manchin problem continues to exist and we have not found a way to, you know, evade that yet. You know, it's funny. I was living in a world of delusion. Uh, I read Michael Moore and I go, yeah, yeah. And there were other people. I think he's not the only one. Other lefties saying the same thing. And then you you just said Joe Manson. I was like, oh, my God, Joe Manson, you're right. He ain't still there. He's from West Virginia. Uh, and you're also right. I've already that uh, Democratic control of Congress. It's such a fluid moment because the next Senate map in 2024 really favors the Republicans. Uh, now, so there's so much unpredictability in the air. There's so much volatility. Uh, you know, there's so many variables. It's hard to know what's going to happen. And, and it's going to be very tumultuous in the next two years. You're exactly right as Republicans uh, try to shut down the government. But I can tell you right now, Miles, uh, cutting Social Security is the kiss, kiss of death for the Republican Party. Uh, it, because if you, I'll just say this to uh, all my younger listeners, you get old, you can't work. You're looking at social security. And it's a real, real deal thing in life. That social security check for a lot of people, 
everybody now in Illinois, they're, oh, we're sick of paying pensions. So I guess only uh, a few, a handful of lucky people have pensions. And there's so much resistance to uh, public pensions. So in the private world, if you, if you look at the private world, you have Social Security. If they go after Social Security, that's going after a lot of geezers. And I don't know how that's a winning ticket I, for Republicans other than some nutcases in Florida who may think the stock market will save them. So, uh, you know, what, Miles, what you've described is just like a world of utter total chaos for the next two years, a dystopian world of madness. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of what you've been getting at, where Republicans are uh, still being controlled by MAGA and Trump. Uh, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have enough votes in the House to cut a deal with Biden, so he's going to be endlessly fighting Biden. Uh, and meanwhile, you have really pressing issues of debt ceiling uh, and threats to like the economic security of so many Americans. Uh, if there's Medicare cuts or Social Security cuts, that's utter madness is really what you've described. Whether you, you haven't used those words, but effectively, that's what we're looking forward to. And it's kind of scary, uh, frankly, uh, as I approach it. Yeah. Do you think that Democrats have the discipline? Uh, to stay together and not fracture under that kind of uh, pressure in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think that they have to because other, I mean, I don't think that there's an appetite to really collude with the Republican Party on, you know, anything in terms of passing legislation. I just think that the Republicans don't want to do that. They don't have an agenda. They don't have a program, right? Besides, I mean, continuing to cut taxes for rich people, protect corporate profits and, you know, you know, undo the social safety net. I think the one another lesson, you know, from these midterms is that a lot of the culture war issue stuff that the Republicans really tried to push on Mm -hmm. didn't end up working. Right. The you know, they talked about trans kids in schools. They talked about, um, you know, critical race theory um and all these you know threats to families and everything well the people that ran the hardest on those issues and the people that ran hardest on stop the steal and election fraud they were rebuked by by and large so i think that that's one thing that the republicans will um probably take away from this and i don't see you know for example there being much uh willingness amongst anybody in the democratic coalition to um partner with the GOP on those type of, you know, social issues on. And then when it comes to economics, I do think that the fact that Biden has been very vocal in his support for, you know, protecting Social Security, because you're right about Social Security being, you know, something that is that people hold very dear and that, you know, that would be um, they would probably be uh, hurt at the ballot box for the Republican Party if they did, you know, make any serious efforts to cut it. But what they would do is, and they've already talked about this, is protect it for current, you know, retirees and even like future generations. But as, you know, as people get older and start to use the program, that's when the cuts would actually come in, right? So it wouldn't be, and it would be a short term benefit to them right and because they're because they could just say we're not touching yours we're just shoring up the security of it long term but that wouldn't been changing through the cost of living percentages or what have you so i do think that that's basically what the republican agenda would be and i don't think that the democrats are gonna be willing to to cross the aisle 
on that kind of stuff. The thing is, I'll just say is that Republicans are not going to do that. I think for the most part, I mean, I think the debt ceiling will become a flashpoint in that. But the Republicans have announced what their plan is. It's to go after Hunter Biden. You know, that's what we're going to hear for the next two years is just nonstop <laughs> investigations over Hunter's laptop. That's yeah. like that's what they got. Right. I mean, because they, they've kind of like gotten into a basic pattern, right, where they did this with Benghazi. They're going to yeah. do it again. It's just going to be like never ending. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't turn up stuff because it will rile up the base and it'll have an enemy and it'll say, you know, these people are the worst, most vile people. And then meanwhile, you've got all these, you know, even though a lot of the far right Republicans lost, some of the more, you know, Q oriented, QAnon like oriented people has still are vocal in Republican leadership. Marjorie Taylor Greene's going to get a House committee seat. You know, Lauren Boebert seems to have potentially won her race. Um, and they're going to be very vocal about what they think. The Democrats are running like a satanic cabal, basically. So I think you're going to get that kind of vile stuff going from the far right of the party. And then the majority of it's going to be centered around the the, the Biden investigation stuff that is going to just dominate wow. our politics for a while. Yeah. Uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. What a trip. Uh, I'm going to do a deep dive with, uh, uh, we have a, a guest who comes on who, who's, who follows uh, QAnon and follows conspiracy theories. I'm going to do a deep dive on that one because the whole, I haven't really talked about the whole cult around Hunter Biden's laptop. Just the weirdness of it all, that Hunter Biden's laptop showed up at this uh, computer store or something. I forget where it was. And like It's just, the whole thing is so trippy and weird. It's like only in America. Uh, and uh, so we will be doing deep dives on that. Uh, all right, by the way, I'll tell you, if you want to alienate the youth vote even more than you already have, uh, essentially tell young people, we're going to save Social Security for geezers who right now are on Social Security, but we're going to screw you guys over. <laughs> There's a great message to win over uh, Miles' generation. Oh, you're going to be hopelessly screwed when you get to be a geezer. Uh, so, yeah, I get your point that you made, that they're distinguishing between people on uh, Social Security now as opposed to people who will be depending on it later. But that's just alienating 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds more than they've already alienated them. So that'll be an interesting strategy for uh, MAGA to follow. All right, we'll close with a little Chicago talk. We're just at the start of the mayoral election. Uh, I talked about this uh, in the uh, show uh, with Mark Sims on Tuesday. And um, fascinating stuff, man. The, uh, like there's utter madness in the world uh, in the United States in terms of MAGA's uh, political stands and the fight against Trump and Trumpism, et cetera. But in Chicago, it's got its own set of uh, madness. Uh, do you follow what I'm saying, uh, Miles? And it's, it's almost like, for me, a welcome relief because I don't think the stakes are as high, but they're pretty high, but they're not as high, which is funny coming from me because I spent my entire life following Chicago politics. Uh, but right now, I've seen two pretty strong candidates at this earliest stage emerging from the left or on the left. And one would be Brandon Johnson, Cook County Commissioner, was on the show a couple of weeks ago. You can hear that interview. And the other would be Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia, who ran against Rahm in 2015, supported Bernie, big-time Bernie supporter, big-time supporter of Delia Ramirez, uh, campaign on her behalf uh, when she was victorious this time around in the Democratic primary. So what's your sense of how the left will go uh, in the city of Chicago as we head into the mayoral race. And I know it's really early, but just your sort of early sense of things. Yeah, well, early uh, indicators are all that the um, 
at least the organized left in Chicago, meaning the you know organizations that kind of represent um, progressive movements, movement organizations, as well as the labor movement, um, have thrown their lot in with Brandon Johnson. And we saw that um, largely with the United Working Families endorsement, which is you know a coalition of a number of progressive groups and unions um, and the Chicago Teachers Union, which is one of the biggest you know power players in terms of um, boots on the ground and funding um, that can make an impact uh, on an electoral race. And yeah, they, uh, they've largely um, gotten behind Brandon. You've also seen a number of other unions, SEIUHCII's uh, endorsed Brandon Johnson, tons of uh, elected officials, people like Delia Ramirez, um, and older people like Rosana Rodriguez and Carlos Rosa are backing um, Brandon Johnson. So it seems like that's kind of where the so far the left has um, has you know put their their resources in terms of what they're going to do when it comes to the mayor's race. Um, I haven't seen a lot of that in terms of the Chuy Garcia campaign yet. I don't know exactly what the um, plan is they talked about you know there being a lot of different unions for example that they could reach out to and obviously there there are some i do think we should expect things like the chicago federation of labor to stick with the incumbent with mayor lightfoot but i don't know i mean a lot of unions still haven't um made a decision yet because it's still you know fairly early days i mean neither um chewy garcia or Lori lightfoot have even turned in their petitions to be on the ballot yet um, which is kind of an interesting choice i think since the other mayoral candidates either did or like raymond lopez great friend of the benjirovsky show as well i know um <laughs> have uh, have decided to take their hat out of the ring yeah. um now so you know i i don't know i think that the i, I do think that there, there's a lot more than a mayor's race happening in February, though, and that's because this mass exodus from city council. And because of that, a lot of these organizations are, you know, focused on getting um, a city council that can actually pass progressive policies, no matter who's the mayor, you know, and, and, and force their hand. And you're seeing that in, in races like, um, uh, you know, you got... Uh, uh, Angela Clay, you've got people like Louise Buani, um, that, that the United Working Families uh, Party has supported, even uh, uh, Vico Alvarez in the 15th Ward. Um, of course, there's, um, you know, the, 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 the current progressives on the city council and left-wingers on the city council, like Rosana and Carlos, as well as By Byron Sicha Lopez, Daniel Espada, who's facing a threat both from a, a descendant of Mike Royko as well as the former alderman, um, Joe Marino, who's trying to make his political comeback in the first ward. Um, so, you know, they're going to have to defend, you know, the left is going to have to defend a lot of seats that they currently have, but they're certainly looking to, you know, progressives are looking to expand their ranks as well so that they can ultimately get to 26 votes and be able to, you know, override mayoral decisions if, if needed, but certainly to push through policy and make sure it doesn't get shelved. And, and so I think that, you know, it's a, it's a big task, but the fact that there are going to be so many, um, open seats or at least like competitive races uh for the city council this term i think means that it's not just going to be all about the mayor's race the way it you know kind of felt like it was back in 2015 the last time chewy ran you know that was i think the progressive groups really just made their uh primary goal 
um, defeating uh, Rahm Emanuel and that, you know, didn't succeed. They did get him into a runoff with Chewy back in uh, 2015, but ultimately Rahm prevailed. And I think the lesson was that we need to, you know, use these resources to build out um, a, a bench uh, in city council. And so I think that that's, we're, we're gonna see that along with um, the, the energy behind Brandon Johnson's campaign. I, I, you know what, that's a good place to end it because it's a positive note that I can actually uh, agree with. Uh, I'm smiling when I say it, but I, I, it's going to sound funny coming from me, but I do believe the future of progressive politics, if we're going to call it progressive politics, lefty politics, is in the city council. Uh, I think that uh, counting on mayors is a frustrating uh, and ultimately um, disappointing uh, path to choose. Uh, it's the aftermath of Harold Washington. And I've just been encouraged over the last four years by the number of uh, older people who have stood up and, and have not bowed. And I don't know if they're going to get reelected. As, I, as you point out, like Daniel Espada is going to be in a tough race. I think he will prevail, probably take a runoff. Uh, Jeanette Taylor, I mean, I just can't think of an alderman who is just so passionate and powerful and, and just fearless. It's like Jeanette Taylor and Rosanna Rodriguez. And I know they're good friends of the show and they come on all the time, but I, just, you know, they're just fearless. And so uh, I think that is a very encouraging sign. I think you make a very good point that in the future, uh, lefties probably should be concentrating on some of these aldermanic seats. I think it was a huge mistake put so many egg, eggs in the basket of Tony Perkwinkle in 2019. Uh, but, you know, the, the positive side of it all is that uh, there were some lefties and they did stand their ground and they did force Lightfoot on a few moments and budgets uh, to bend a little bit. So the heavy emphasis on the word little. Uh, and um, so I think that's, that's a good spot to end the show. I think you're right, Miles. Um, and it also uh, promotes just kind of progressive politics in general. You know what I'm saying? And, and so you see J.B. Pritzker, who who began his career as a centrist Democrat, he moved left uh, as governor of the state of Illinois. He moved left. And uh, it's unthinkable just, I mean, God, Miles, when you and I first met, which I think is like around 2010, 11, somewhere around there, Democrats wouldn't even champion legalizing uh, reefer. They were like afraid to even talk about it. They would tell me, Ben, can we go off the record on this? That was just 12 years ago. And now, you know, I, I remember when uh, JB won his uh, victory against uh, Darren Bailey, one of the first things, we legalized cannabis. I was like cracking up. I mean, man, it's, I like gone to a different universe. Uh, of course, Biden still won't. I don't know what his problem is. But, you know, he he's still stubborn on this issue, which I don't understand. So I think you're right. I think, like, the success of uh, aldermanic lefties in Chicago does force Democrats to be less um, demi and more Democrat, if you get what I'm saying. I don't know if you know what I mean when I say demi. Uh, I'm not talking about Demi Moore. I'm talking about Demi Dems who are so scared of their own shadow. New York, New York Dems, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about. But uh, anyway, so that's a good uh, spot to leave it. I think uh, good hope for the future.
Uh, so we're going to close. It's the day after Thanksgiving that you're hearing this, but we're having the conversation before Thanksgiving. So I want to wish you and your family, Miles, great Thanksgiving. I uh, hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving. Uh, let's close with a little NBA talk because Miles, a big Bulls fan, as am I. So, Miles, uh, on Thanksgiving, are you giving thanks for my beloved Chicago Bulls? Or are you giving them little, like the piece of the turkey that gets burnt? because uh you're disappointed in their performance are you thankful for the bulls or are you feeling they've disappointed i'm most thankful for the dancing of one dalen terry our uh, <laughs> beloved rookie who is bringing more life to the bench since cameron Payne in oklahoma city back when he would do his warm-up dances with uh russell westbrook we got we we got you know a true ball of energy on the bench and it uh it just brings joy it's like watching you know joakim noah back in the day who's also been you know coming to a lot more bulls games the bulls are really embracing him as a ambassador for the organization which has been another uh wonderful thing to see i mean the fact that they were able to beat the you know top team in the east the boston celtics i think shows that this bulls team still has grit they've been you know through a lot of uh, challenges and adversity obviously he's still far away from getting lonzo ball back their star point guard but in his absence i think they're able to work you know a really solid uh type of play when they have both javante green and alex caruso on the floor just disrupting defenses getting into the uh open lanes and you know getting uh you know running i think that that's the biggest thing of billy donovan's offense is that it's a little bit more improvisational and it requires the team to run whereas you know we're used to seeing this team just isolate in that in the in the half court and so it's going to take a while i think for them to kind of get comfortable with that but there it's more you know what the other thing i'm thankful for we this is the no drama bulls we could have seen, you know, especially after that benching of Zach Levine, um, the Magic game, we could have seen a whole, you know, world of storylines and infighting and, you know, tit for tat. And instead, they just moved on. Zach played a great game and they beat the Celtics. Look what we got going on in Boston where Jalen Brown is posting videos of, you know, the black Israelites in support of Kyrie Irving and having to apologize for it or the Nets, which are just a train wreck right now, or the Lakers for that matter. There's so many teams that there's just so much drama going on that yeah. it gets in the way of actually caring about basketball. So I'm thankful for the, 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 the Bulls are drama free and we got Dalen dancing on the bench. All right, that's good. That's a good place to leave it. And by the way, I would love to Dale and Terry to come in the game because I, I do believe he could play. Uh, so it's funny. The Bulls have all injuries. Zach's not definitely not at full hundred uh, percent. I mean, he like it's seventy percent of that. Uh, and so you say, wow, why isn't there room for Dale and Terry? Well, there's a lot of guys, man. There's a lot of guys uh, that are ahead of him, but eventually he'll get there. And I love his energy, his enthusiasm as well. And yes, I'm a diehard Bulls fan, and I'm thankful for my beloved Chicago Bulls. There you go. Even though they're uh, had a few stumbling blocks, uh, Miles also thankful for you. Always uh, stepping in, coming on, and giving us great insights. So have a great Thanksgiving, and I'll talk to you real soon. All right. Great. Farewell. Thanks for having me. All right. This is great, Miles Conflasen. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.